0: Father, what a position and a posture of dependence that is pictured in this song that we sing. And we say we'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. And God, we don't do that easily. We don't do that with just anyone and and, and not risk getting hurt, not risk being abused. But God, you, with you, we can do that because you demonstrated that love for us. You're not some distant God who's unknown and impersonal, but you are a God who is very present and has made yourself known to us. In fact, you became so personal that you became one of us, like one of us, lived among us, so that you could save us. And so, God, we we can trust you. We can abandon ourselves to you, to your will into your direction but God that's hard for us to do as people who are independent so would you break us of our dependence upon ourselves God I pray that you would draw us deeper into understanding your love for us and that you would quicken our love for you do it God however you see fit And as we continue to worship this morning, I pray now as we start to look at your word that you would teach us, let your spirit guide, speak the words you want to speak, and that your spirit would take uh, the words of your scripture today and apply it to each heart, each person's life as they each need, so that we would not walk out of here today unchanged, and that the Lord Jesus would be magnified. We pray it in his name, amen you can see it. Well, good morning. good morning. All right. I usually expect you're going to be a little more awake by the time I get up here, so good morning. Good morning. All right, because I don't just get up here and talk for fun, you know. I mean, I like to hear myself talk, but not that much. Hey, welcome this morning again. My name is Justin Rockoff. You're visiting this morning. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you are, are here this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us particularly, it's a great time to be here. Uh, we are still in our series that looks at who we are as a church. And so we're going to continue that today and then next week wrap that up. Um, but we're looking at who we are as a church. What makes us tick? What's important to us? And so if you're in a, in a spot where you're evaluating, uh, is this a church for me? Is this where God might be leading? This is a good time for you to be here. And, and we understand that uh, it takes time to evaluate. And so what we want to do is we're putting all of our cards on the table so that you see who we are and then you can evaluate, is this a place that God's leading for me and my family? And certainly along the way, if there's questions, we love to visit about that. But we, we, we spent the first four weeks looking at our core values. What, what makes us tick? What drives us? What, what fuels the decisions that we make? And it's not that other things aren't important. It's that when we say these are our core values, these are the things that when we're up against the wall, when the pressure is on thick, these are the things that, that rise up to the top as most important to us. So we looked at those uh, the first four weeks. And then we took a break last week as we celebrated communion. And today we're gonna look at our mission statement. You know, a a mission statement, uh, it's not just something that you put in writing and that that groups and organizations do. I mean, lots of groups and organizations have a mission statement. But not a lot of them follow their mission statement. A mission statement is supposed to be how you get to where you're going. You know, next week we're going to look at where we're going, where we think God's leading. But before we can get there, we've got to talk about how we plan to get there. What is it that we're going to do to help us get where God is going? And a mission statement for churches uh, should be uncompromising. It should be unchanging. It should stand the test of time. There might be tweaks in wording and stuff here, but as far as the foundation of it, it shouldn't change. In fact, every church should have certain elements in their mission statement we'll look at this morning. But a mission statement is, how do we plan to get where we're going? What do we do? And so if you're here evaluating this morning, and if you've called Heaston home, uh, maybe you've seen these words. You know, we've got them painted on walls, and, and you see them on uh, different spots, but maybe you've never thought deeply about it, because we do. They're, they're not words that, that were chosen lightly. And so I want to walk through what it is that we as a church as this local group gathering, what do we do? What do we spend our time doing? So our mission statement, how are we going to get to where we're going? This is our mission statement, loving, living, and leading others to Jesus Christ. Loving, living, and leading others to Jesus Christ. Now there's three separate components to it, but they all kind of fuel one another. In fact, the, the second two are dependent on the first the seconds depend on a verse. They all kind of go back and depend upon one another. And so this morning, we're going to look at each of these, these points. Loving Jesus Christ, living Jesus Christ, and then leading others to Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, I want you to start with uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. This morning, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. If you need a Bible, there should be a few on the rows in front of you. Feel free to grab those. Uh, and uh, if you are in um, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 in those Bibles, you're going to go to page 1148, Eleven forty-eight, And as you're turning there, if you're using one of those Bibles, and as you read it and follow it this morning, if it works for you, the words you can understand them, you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, please accept that as our gift. Just take it with you when you leave this morning. We'd love for you to have a Bible that you can call your own and that you can read and study. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Now, uh, leading up to this, Jesus has been walking about, he's been doing ministry, he's been doing healings and miracles, and, and he's also encountered quite a bit of debates and tensions. And this is uh, no exception. This is one of those times where Jesus is, 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 is kind of skirting around a trap. You see, because as Jesus walked the earth, people didn't like him. People didn't like this guy who shows up and who, who tells them what you've been doing, you're missing the point. And he, he goes after the religious leaders of the day and, and he says to them, you guys are, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're just a bunch of corrupted people. And so they, they were constantly trying to trap him, trying to trick him into to saying something that they can then take and use and twist and get him uh, in trouble for him. And so this is one of those moments where, where Jesus has been talking, he's got a crowd gathering, gathering him. he's answered one question, and, and so someone standing nearby hears him answer the question, and they think, oh, he's answered that question well. Well, I've got another question for him. And he says, hey, Jesus, of all the laws, what's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus, if you'll look with me at Mark 12, and I'll start with verse 29, and then we'll read 30. He says this, and Jesus answered, the most important is, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And here's our verse, verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So a guy asked Jesus, hey, pick one. If you had to pick one, what's the most important? Now, now that's not so easy of a question because the the Jewish law, the law that was given to Moses back in, in the book of Exodus, actually had 613 commandments. You see, so, so this question is loaded because it doesn't matter which one Jesus were to pick. If he picks just one, someone's gonna come up and say, well, how can you say that one's more important than this one? You see, so it's a trap. 613, Jesus, you pick one. If you had to pick one, now keep in mind, Jesus is God in the flesh, God in a bod. The very one who gave the law, the very one who gave every one of the 613 commandments, and you're asking God, who gave every one of those 613 commandments, pick just one. What's the most important? That'd be like talking to you parents who have multiple kids, and you say, pick one. Which one's the most important to you? Which one's your favorite? You don't do that. At well, least not in public, not in front of the kids, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe behind closed doors you go, that one. Oh, that one's my heart. But you would never do that. All right, it's kind of like that except on a much higher level. So it, it, it's, just, it's just reeking of debate. It's reeking of a trap. But as often as Jesus does, he doesn't answer as the questions posed. He doesn't pick just one. In fact, what he does is he goes back to a foundational moment. And he says, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As soon as he opens his mouth and says that, all of his Jewish audience around are going, we, we know that. We know that verse. You see, because what Jesus has started to quote here comes back from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It's that fifth book of your Bible. It's the, it's the book that, that Moses wrote right before he was sending this group of, of Israelites that he was leading through the desert for those 40 years. They were about to cross into the land that God was leading him and Moses needed to go over with them again the law. He needed to go over with these people who were, who were younger when they started out, but now who were older and whose parents had either died or were no longer, or no longer around for whatever reason. And he says, we need to go over something here. This is what God has said. He's leading you into the land. And when you get there, here's how you're supposed to live. Because God had a plan for them. When you go into this land, God was going to use Israel as his light. They were supposed to be a nation set upon a hill so that others would look and see how they live, how their God treated them, and how he was different, and they would be drawn to that God. And so as soon as he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, everyone should be going, that's, that's the Shema, because that's what they call it, Shema, to hear. That's, that's one of the most important verses in the Jewish Bible. They would, they would quote it, they would teach their kids, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Is one. And then Jesus picks up the part that comes right after that. And this is where his answer is. Here's the greatest commandment. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the most important commandment, he says. Now, there's four elements that you see in that verse love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. With all your mind and with all your strength. Now, those first three, heart, soul, and mind, there are minor differences to them, but the point of the verse is all of your inner being. All of your heart, your center of emotions, your feelings, all of your soul, the the rest of your inner being, and all of your mind, your intellect. Everything that is inside of you, love the Lord with all of that. And then the fourth one is your physical strength, your physical ability. Love the Lord with all of yourself is what the point, the big picture of that verse is. All of your person you're supposed to love the Lord with. You see, Jesus is saying, and and the point of this verse is is that it's not just enough to love God with your emotions, but never learn more about him. To, To just love him and have a good warm fuzzy feeling when you sing great songs, but have no idea who you're singing to. It's not enough. Because then you're only loving God with, with one part of you. It's not enough also on the flip side to love God with only your mind, but to detach your emotions. You have all the right answers. You know this book inside and out, but man, your heart's cold. It's not impassioned for the God that you know about, the God that you sing about. That's not enough. You're not loving him fully if you detach any of those. And so Jesus is saying, it starts with this. You've got to love the Lord your God with all of your being, all of your person, because Jesus knows the rest will follow. If you are loving God with all of your person, you don't have to worry about memorizing those 613 laws. I mean, think about that. If you were new to the Jewish faith or you're just starting out as a kid and your parents says, now we're going to start learning the law and we've got to know all the commandments. Now there's 613 of them. Hey, can you imagine sitting down and teaching your kid today or you, you're learning something new and you sit down and someone says, now we've got thir- 613 things we need you to memorize. Maybe it's spelling words. Maybe it's flashcards with some kind. Maybe it's rules at the job. You've got 613 of them you need to learn and, and all of them are important. You've got to know and understand all of them because you've got to follow all of them. Because if you're starting out this new job or if you miss one on the test, you're gonna, you're gonna have a consequence for that. All 613, now that's pretty overwhelming for anyone. Now in their culture, it it would be just like ours. You know, you start them out young and you kind of teach them the way and you kind of learn it and you kind of assimilate parts of it as you grow up. You know, if someone were coming to America, I mean, most of us who are citizens, if we were to sit down and take that test for citizenship, we'd probably flunk it, if we're being honest. Because when's the last time we've studied that kind of stuff? When's the last time we thought through it? We, we take it for granted because we've been taught it and we've just kind of assimilated it in, but to be able to regurgitate that on a test or a driving test. You know, I mean, we've been driving for so long you don't have to take those tests again. There's a lot of rules of the road you've got to follow. What do you do at a four-way stop? You know, who goes next? You know, what do you do in the lights flashing yellow or, or, or red? What do you do? I mean, we, we take that for granted if we grew up because if you've been here and you learned how to drive here growing up, you just kind of assimilated in. And so all these rules and these laws, they kind of just, they assimilate. But can you imagine sitting down and having to ingest all of them at once? And then can you imagine being held responsible for all 613? Jesus says, here's, here's the deal. If you start with this, love God, love him, with all of your being, all of your heart, your soul, your mind, everything that's in you, and your strength. Love them. Whatever you do, do it out of love for God. Then everything else follows. That's what we start with at Houston. Loving Jesus Christ. Because we understand that if we don't first love God, nothing else good will follow. Now, now, we love God because he first loved us. That's what first, the book of First John says when he's writing this church. He says, hey guys, uh, let's not be fooled. You don't love God first and then he started loving you because you were so lovable. John says, we start with the fact that God loved us and that's why we love. For here, here at Houston, for us, it starts with what we do, starts with loving Jesus Christ. It starts with our own personal vertical relationship with Christ and our corporate group relationship with Christ. Everything else that follows has to flow out of a love for Christ. If it doesn't, then we border on the edge of being just religious and we border on the edge of just creating rules and doing things for the sake of looking good. But if we start with cultivating and nurturing a relationship with Christ because God has so loved us and demonstrated that love for us when he sent Christ to die for us, regardless of how we were, who we were. If we understand that, that should provoke love for Christ. And it starts there. And so our mission, what we do, how we're gonna get to where we're going cannot happen if we don't first start with loving Jesus Christ. We can't neglect that. We we can't neglect our own personal relationship with Christ and we can't neglect our relationship with each other as followers of Christ. We have to start there. Because just like Jesus is saying, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he knows that the rest will follow, if we start with loving Jesus Christ, the rest will follow. And so we we move on to that second point. So if we if we start with loving Jesus Christ as the vertical relationship here, we start with our own our own relationship and our relationship as a church with Christ. The next comes living Jesus Christ. And so for that we're going to go to Second Corinthians chapter five. So if you'll turn to Second Corinthians chapter five, if you are in the pew Bibles there, you're going to page twelve. I'm sorry, not twelve ninety two. That's First Corinthians. You're going to page thirteen oh three. Second Corinthians chapter 5. If you're in the pew Bible there, you're going to page 1303. So we start with loving Jesus Christ. And we, we pick up a story of a man who loved his Savior. Because we pick up a story of Paul who once was called Saul. And, and if you know anything about the Bible, even if you've never been around church, there's at least two names you know. Because usually you hate them. Jesus and Paul. Jesus was that guy who talked of it like he was the only way to God. And then Paul's that male chauvinist, right? That's that's the two people most people know. Paul's harsh. Most people wish Paul never wrote anything. But if you know the story of Paul, then you know as Saul, he was actually going and killing Christians. He was so zealous for his God and believed that this was his his religious right and his religious uh, obligation that he had to go and kill this new group of people who were going away from the Jewish faith. He, he had to go and, and stop this new movement which had risen up known as the way. And he took it upon himself and he did that. In fact, the very first Christian ever killed uh, in Acts chapter six, Stephen was killed while Saul stood right there. This is a man who had a, a, a great zeal that was misplaced, a religious zeal that was misplaced. And because of that, he acted on his beliefs And he went and he killed followers of Christ. On his way to a city known as Damascus to go and kill uh, followers of Christ and pull them out and bring them in prison, he gets stopped in his tracks, falls off his horse, blinded by this bright light. And from the light as Saul, Saul's laying on the ground, blinded, it comes this voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Now Saul was on his way to persecute followers of Christ. But here he is stopped in his tracks and this voice comes out, why are you persecuting me? So Paul asked the question that probably many of us would have asked if we would have thought to ask it. Well, who are you? From that light, the voice says, it is Jesus who you are persecuting. Saul's world must have been rocked at that point. Jesus had been killed. Saul certainly didn't believe he had been raised from the dead. Like, his fo- like the followers of Christ did. And so now here he is, stopped in his tracks. He sees no one. All he sees is a light. It's blinded him. And this voice says, hey, it's Jesus. You're persecuting me as you go and persecute these followers of mine. To persecute them is to persecute me. And Saul's life is changed. He becomes known as Paul because God's mercy was not beyond saving someone like Paul who went and was killing the very followers of Christ. And so Paul understood how great and how far-reaching God's love was. Later on, he says uh, in a letter to one of his, his young uh, disciples, Timothy, he says, hey, this is a trustworthy statement. Christ came to save sinners. And then Paul says, and I am the chief among them. Paul never forgot where he'd come from. He never forgot who he was, but he never, he never dwelled on that because He knew who God had made him to be. And so we pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and we see the impact of God's love, Christ's love to Paul in Paul's life. So uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll start with verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Paul says we've got something different that's driving our lives now. See, he's writing to a church who who is questioning his authority as an apostle, as a leader of the church, because other people have crept into this church and they started whispering things about Paul. You know, Paul, he wasn't really one of those guys who was with Jesus from the beginning. You know, Paul... Paul used to be known as Saul. Maybe you didn't know what he did, but here's what his life was like before he changed his name. You know, Paul, this message that he preaches, it's just to get him to be most popular. After all, why would anyone tell you that you don't have to do anything to be, to be saved by God? You just got to believe. It can't be that easy. Paul. And so, Paul's writing this church, and he's now defending his authority. And he's trying to explain to them the grounds on which he has authority. And he's trying to explain to them why they've seen him do the things he does and endure the things he does. And he's saying to them, because there's something different that controls us now. Because one of the things that had crept into the church was, Paul is just foolish. He doesn't know what he's doing. And Paul will have to defend that and say, the reason I appear foolish is for Christ's sake but he's saying something new controls us. In verse 14, it's the love of Christ that controls us. Paul knew how great God's love was for him, how it was demonstrated through Christ because Paul was aware of how needy and dependent and how lost he was before God intervened. Paul was aware that he was on a road to go and kill Christians when God stepped in. Paul was not a seeker. Paul was not even warm toward Christ. Paul had no inclination toward Christ were it not for God reaching down and intervening in Paul's life and rocking his world, Paul knows he'd still be on that path and he'd be lost and he'd be without hope. And so Paul is a man who has been captured by the love of Christ and it's changed him. And he says, now that is what controls me. That is what influences what I do. That is what drives me. That's what makes Paul wake up in the morning and go, knowing that he's going to get stoned again, knowing that people are going to reject him. This is what makes Paul get up and travel across that region to other countries and to go to places that no other person has gone, even when the Spirit of God says, when you go there, they will arrest you. When you go there, they will stone you. It's what drives Paul to live as he does. So he says it's the love of Christ that controls us because he understood that when Christ died and we place our trust in Christ, we too die. You see, when we place our trust in Christ, uh, there's a death that takes place. And it's a death to the power of sin in our lives. The power of sin that once controlled us. And I know that sounds ridiculous to it may sound ridiculous to some because, you know, after all, if even if you're not a Christ follower, you certainly wouldn't say I'm dead or our sin controls me. None of us would say that. But the reality is, when we are controlled by the power of sin, when we have not yet placed our trust in Christ, when we are still separate from God, we're we're blinded to those things. We can't see straight. We look at ourselves and we say, I'm good. I'm not as bad as him or her. I do this, I do that. Certainly God's loving and fair and he's not gonna send someone like me to hell. Paul understood that were it not for God opening his eyes, he would have still been in that spot too. He understood that when he placed his trust in Christ, that he too died just like Christ died. And he died to the power of sin which means sin no longer controls Paul. Instead, something else has taken that place because when Christ raised from the dead, Paul also understands that he got new life because Christ rose to new life. And so he says Christ died for all and so therefore all died. And then he gives us now the reason. Christ didn't die so that we can be warm and cozy inside a church building. Christ didn't die so that we can just huddle around with a bunch of other followers for Christ and, and wait there until the rapture of the church while everybody else out there is lost. Christ didn't die so that we can get our ticket, pu- our ticket punched and then go on living however we want it to live, fulfilling our own desires, our own pleasures. He goes on and he says in verse 15, he died for all so that those who live, that is those who've placed their trust in Christ and they get new life, those who live, They shouldn't live for themselves anymore. Instead, they should live for the one. They should live for the one uh, who was raised, Christ. We start with loving God, loving Christ. As we love Christ, we have to then live Jesus Christ. We have to stop living our lives as if they're our own. Because they're not. Peter tells us in one of his letters, you've been bought with a price. Our lives are not our own if we've placed our trust in Christ. And so for us to go on living like they're our own, fulfilling our own desires, doing whatever it is we want to do, and to neglect living for Christ is to lack in love for Christ. But if we start with loving Christ, Loving Jesus Christ. And we cultivate and nurture that relationship. We don't neglect that. It should and must flow into living that out. Because the same love that we have experienced from God, if God would have kept it to himself and not lived it out, not acted on it, we'd all be still lost and dead in our sins, hopeless. But God did not keep his love to himself, he didn't keep himself hidden. He would have been fine to. God didn't need us, doesn't need us. God didn't lack anything when He sent Christ, when He created the world. God has always existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Those three are perfectly happy all within themselves. They lack nothing, they lack no love. They don't need us to worship them. They're already worthy of worship. We don't add anything to God. But God could not keep His love to Himself because the type of love that God had overflows and it's demonstrated, and it's acted upon. And so the way we're gonna get to to go where we're going, where God is leading us as a church, is we've gotta start with loving Jesus Christ, and that love for Jesus Christ has to flow into living Jesus Christ. We have to live what we believe. It's not enough to stay in the comfort of the church, walls. It's not enough to to stay in, in a place where we are separate and protected from the evil grips of the world we've got to get out and live out what we believe. We've got to get out and live a life that reflects the fact that God actually died for us because he loved us. And if we understand that, it should motivate us. See, Christianity is not about living a set of rules just so you can please some distant God. It's about responding to God's love because you understand how great it was and how desperate and needy You are. Someone in your life does something and shows you an act of love that that just is beyond what people do. It's beyond gracious. Your response typically is I want to honor you in the way I live, I want to honor you in the decisions I make. But too often, what we do is we twist that and we say, I want to earn your favor. God's already given it to us. I want to perform and please you. God's already pleased with us because he's already pleased with Christ. And when we trust in Christ, we are put in Christ so that as God looks at us, he sees Christ and he says, I'm pleased with you. And there's not a thing that you or I could do to make God love us any more or any less. And when we get that, we can't help but live that. That's why Paul can say it's the love of Christ that controls us. If we are cultivating and nurturing a love of Jesus Christ, it should and must flow into living Jesus Christ, living him out, living out his, the, the, the things he's taught us. The way that he loves, we love. The way that he treats people, we treat people. And we do that among our coworkers, among students, classmates, strangers, Wherever we go, we live them out. But it starts with loving Jesus Christ and it moves into living Jesus Christ. And if we are doing those things, if we are loving Jesus Christ and therefore we're now living him out, that must lead to leading others to Jesus Christ. Leading others to Jesus Christ. So for that, I want you to just flip back one book to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter nine. So if you're in the pew Bible, that's page 1292. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, page 1292, if you're in the Pew Bible. God did not keep his love to himself. The type of love that God has shown us is a love that is acted upon. It's a love that's demonstrated. And if we're loving Jesus Christ, and as we love him, we're living it out, we should be then also leading people to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has has something to say about how, how he did that, And we can learn from him about how he did that. So look with me at at 1 Corinthians 9, and I'm going to start with verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Now keep in mind, Paul is a Jewish person by birth. Paul knows the law of Moses and used to live under the law by Moses. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all in order to gain even more people. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to gain the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. But he did it to gain those under the law. So let me stop there for a minute. Paul's saying, I'm not bound by the law anymore. Paul understood that when Christ died and he placed his trust in Christ, that having to follow the law for the sake of of pleasing God was done away with. He couldn't do it anyway. He realized that, but now he could stop trying because Christ did it. When Christ walked the earth, when Jesus came and he lived, he fulfilled the law. That is, he never broke any one of those 613 commandments. He was always fulfilling the law. And when he died, he died having never broken one single law. So God's righteous requirement that was stipulated through the law had been met. So how does a person who can't obey the law, can't earn righteousness before God by the way you live, how can you get accepted by God? You trust in the one who fulfilled the law. You trust in the one who met the requirements, the righteous requirements of God. And so Paul says, I understand now that in Christ, the law no longer has has power over me as a way to live. In other words, Paul does not have to stop eating shrimp, stop eating bacon and pork. Paul can now, now wear clothes that are blended cotton. If he so desired, he could boil a goat in its mother's milk. That was one of the laws that you should not boil a goat in its mother's milk. I don't know why you would do that, but Paul, if he wanted to, he could do that. It didn't matter anymore. Now, there were elements of the law still that were carried over. Most of the Ten Commandments were still carried over because the Ten Commandments were the moral part of the law. Whereas a lot of the other parts of the law was more ceremonial. This is is what you do as a group of people in this land, a group of nation, a nation known as Israel, you are to sacrifice lambs. Paul knew I don't have to make sacrifices anymore because there's already been one sacrifice made through Christ, and it's once for all. Paul knew that if he if he messed up and sinned, he didn't have to go slaughter a goat. It's already been paid for, and so Paul is saying I'm free from the law. I, I, I don't have to be under the law. But he says, for the sake of winning Jews to Christ for the sake of seeing more Jewish people come to Christ, he's willing to submit himself to the law. He's willing to honor the law in their presence so as not to cause an unnecessary hindrance to them believing the gospel because Paul knew it doesn't matter. Uh, Paul knew that if it means I need to not work on the Sabbath, I won't work on the Sabbath while I'm among the Jews. If it means that Paul had to abstain from eating bacon or ham sandwiches, which maybe Paul had grown to love, I don't know. Paul says, I'll forego that while I'm among the Jewish people, because it doesn't matter to me. What matters is seeing those Jewish people come to Christ. And so Paul says, when I'm around them, I'll live like someone who's under the law. I'll submit myself to the law. I'll honor the customs and the courtesies of that law. But Paul makes sure and clarifies at the end of verse 20, though I myself am not under the law. You see, it's, it's not that Paul's going back to living under the law as a way to please God or to earn favor or to get accepted. That's not what he's doing. Paul's saying, I'm willing to lay down my rights. I have freedom to do whatever I want, but I'm willing to lay those down and not do them, not participate in them while I'm around this group of people, the Jews, so that my life will not be a hindrance to the gospel. Paul says, I will do that to win more of them to Christ. On the flip side, he says, But if I'm around non Jews, if I'm around Gentile people, Greeks, people from other countries who are not Jewish, who don't know the, 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 Moses, uh, the law of Moses, he goes on in verse 21 and he says, So to those who are free from the law, those who were never under it, those who are free from the law, I became like one free from the law. Now, before we go on, Paul knew exactly what every single one of us would think. He knew exactly what his accusers would think. Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying it's a free-for-all? Since you're free from the law, you can live however you want, go around and get drunk, sleep with whoever you want, live it up, fulfill every single uh, uh, pleasure and gratifying uh, every single uh, desire you have, Paul? Is that what you're saying, Paul? That you no longer have a moral code, Paul? Is that what this following Christ means? Is that you can just go and live however you want, Paul? Paul says, no, I live like someone who is free from the law, Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under the law of Christ. Paul says, I can go and live among non Jews who don't follow the law, and I can eat bacon, and I can eat ham, and I don't have to go and and, and sacrifice. I can work alongside them on the Sabbath if it means winning them to Christ. But Paul's careful to say, but don't, don't don't get them wrong. It's not that he's free from morality. Because he's actually now under the law of Christ, which means he now has to live for Christ. He's not free to live however he wants. Remember, we just read in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say to this church later, Hey, I live for the one who raised from the dead. I don't live for myself. And so Paul is saying, I exercise freedoms, but I don't do it in a way that compromises the gospel. I exercise freedoms, but I don't do it in a way that is sinful. So Paul says, When I'm around Jews, I submit myself to law. When I'm around non-Jews, I don't have to follow the law because to them, the law may be a hindrance. I mean, if the Gentile people are in the market on, on the Sabbath, Paul has an opportunity to be working right there next to them. He doesn't have to honor the Sabbath. He's no longer bound by the law. So Paul says, I can go and I can work next to them on Sabbath. If they're eating shrimp, I'm going to eat shrimp. Shrimp was banned under the law. Pork, ham, banned under the law. Paul's saying, I can eat it all. If they're eating meat that they sacrifice to idols in their temple, I can eat that meat. It doesn't bother me because I know those idols are not God. Paul would go on and say, but I'm not going to do it in a way that's going to be abusive, immoral, sinful. But he does it to gain those who are free from the law. In verse 22, then he says, to the weak, I became weak in order to gain the weak. So he's become all things to all people so that by all means he may have win some. To the weak, these are the people in society who didn't have the privileges or the freedoms that Paul had. These would be like slaves or people who worked for someone else and took their orders from someone else. They weren't free to be as bold as Paul was. They weren't free to make all the same decisions that Paul was. They were weak in that sense. They were weaker in class. They weren't, they weren't from the higher power, uh, uh, the higher echelon. They weren't, they weren't influential names. Paul says, to those people, I live like them. Perhaps he means he tones down his boldness. Not that he compromises what he says, but maybe he doesn't exercise some of those rights and decisions that he could make, but they could not because of their situation. So Paul says, I became like them. And the bottom line is, he becomes all things to all people so that he might win some. We start with loving Jesus Christ It's got to uh, overflow into the way we live. And as we live that out, we should be leading others to Jesus Christ. All three must be in place if we're going to get to where we think God is leading us. Everyone who calls Houston home or calls himself a follower of Christ has got to get on board with this. If this is going to be a church that you can fit into and you can be a part of, You've got to love Jesus Christ and start there. And we're gonna come alongside you in that. And so we offer opportunities for that, to cultivate that, to nurture that through different studies, Bible communities and and, uh, community groups, you know, where you get to to learn things. We have other groups like MOPs and we have, um, you know, men's breakfasts and women's events. We have all these different places where you can learn different aspects of what it looks like to love God. And you can do that as a group. And as you do that, we want to see all of us living out what we believe, which means you can't be at the church all the time, which means you can't always be in a Bible study. It means when you go to work, you can't detach your identity in Christ while you're at work. Because once you are bought with a price by Christ, you're his. And as soon as you claim that in public, eyes are on you and eyes are on me. And as we live Christ out, eventually followers become fishers and we've gotta be leading people to Christ. How are we gonna get where we think God is leading Houston Church? By loving Jesus Christ, living Jesus Christ and leading others to Jesus Christ. The question you should be asking this morning is, do I fit in that? Am 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 I cultivating and nurturing my relationship with Christ? My love for him. And is that manifesting itself in the way I live? And if it is, am I taking those opportunities that God places before me to lead others to Christ? If you're visiting this morning and you're evaluating us, we're unapologetic about that, obviously. We're not gonna apologize for the, for the fact that our goal is that we want to see people place their trust in Christ. And we are gonna live our lives in a way and we're gonna work toward living our lives in a way that points people to Christ. And if that means exercising some freedoms, we're going to do it. But we're not going to do it in a way that's sinful. And if it means denying some freedoms, we're going to do it. But we're not going to create rules and standards and become legalists in that way. We're going to adjust and live in a way that is going to create, uh, to knock down unnecessary barriers to others hearing the gospel. So where do you fit in if you call Houston home to loving, living, and leading Jesus Christ? Does that reflect your life? And if you're considering Houston as a church, is this a place that God can lead you? Is this something you can get on board with? So Father, I pray that you will help us to be a church that does that. I pray, God, that that you will take us deeper, that you will reveal to us the areas of our lives that uh, we need to cultivate a, a love for Christ, I pray that you will uh, help us to live that out. Show us what that looks like. Give us the boldness to do so. And then God, help us to take those opportunities where you place people before us, relationships that we have or people we don't even know, to point people to you and to share with them the great news of your love. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. God's love was not beyond rescuing you. And it's not beyond rescuing anyone else. His love has bought you with a price and secured you. So go out, live out that love and share it with others. Do it in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit.